We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's good, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Veterans Minimum. I'm your host, Nick Deus, coming at you live from the Blue Wire Studios here in Las Vegas at the Wynn Casino. My guest all the way from my side of the coast, New York, my guy David Hill is in the building. David, you've been a, uh, I believe this is your third time I've had you on the show. First time in Vegas. What's good, man? It's good to see you on this side. It's good to see you too. Congrats to everything, man. This is really dope. What's going on over here? You know, I uh, think the first time I did the show, did the show with you, I don't remember where we recorded it, but then it was like you had your own studio that you mm-hmm. made and now, you know, started at the bottom and you're here. Yeah, yeah, pretty <laughs> much, man. It's been a nice journey. Um, you, We first met way back because of sports betting. We found each other through social media and Twitter. I know you told this story in the past. And uh, it's just cool to now it brings us to the betting capital of the world. Right. Just have it come like sort of full circle from running into you on the train, the path in Jersey to talk about the legalization of sports betting to Mm -hmm. now just being here in Vegas is it's pretty dope. Yeah. And the story I was writing then was about, you know, New Jersey had just popped. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we were just talking about how there's this one state other than Nevada that has sports gambling and how New Yorkers were flocking into New Jersey to bet. Now they got in New York, you know, now there's like half the, half the country's done it. So the snowball has really come down the hill since. Yeah, I think now the numbers are, it's 30 states that have it, that you can legally wager, and 19 states don't allow it. And I would say there's probably like a handful of states where it's not online, but you can sports bet also. Like I know here in Nevada, you have to physically go to the casinos in the sports books to get the apps. And it's a whole process. Whereas back home in New York, you were able to just download it. You send in your information and right then and there, within 10 minutes from opening up the app, you could put in your first bet. So it's, it's a weird dynamic. It's, it's been a little wacky though out here, man, trying to get bets in on, on, on the sports book apps though. Yeah. I mean, the casinos don't want 
mobile betting because they want people to come into the casino, right? And other states have their own reasons for not allowing mobile betting. Uh, but, you know, you, you, they do that at their peril because, like, the states that have mobile betting, the handle is just massive. And um, the states that don't have mobile betting, the handle's pretty low. And so all these states that thought they were going to get some, you know, some cheese from the tax revenue from doing this are going to be mad when they realize that they're not getting what they thought because people can't bet on their phones. Yeah, it's all about convenience, right? Like, that's the reason why the sports betting apps are so popular. It's, you know, it's halftime. You want to live bet someone, just anything, as opposed to having to physically drive. That's what was happening to me the first weekend that I was out here. First of all, I had a nightmare. I had no internet because it was just an adventure trying to get that all situated. So I remember I went out for week one on Sunday, and then I got back home after the, the morning slate morning. I got to get used to saying that out here too, you know, the 10 a.m. kickoff. And then- 6.30 I, this week. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh my God. I forgot about that. <laughs> Dude, I was looking at the World Cup schedule because the World Cup is this winter. The first games are going to be on at five in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I watch all the games. I'm like, oh my God, these are going to be a nightmare between that and the NFL happening. It's going to be chaos. I can't wait. I'm super excited. But also like, I know I'm going to be on three, four hours of sleep for about six weeks, I would say. But going back to what happened with my first weekend here, I had a couple of parlays live for week one. And then when I got home for the afternoon slate, I, I was like, damn, you know, I have an opportunity to hedge here with the Sunday night football game, but I have to go all the way back. And I did because it was a significant amount of money. I was like, you know what? Just moved out here. I'm not a hedge guy. Are you a hedge guy? Never hedge. Let it ride, right? Never hedge, never cash out. Let's go. Yeah. My type of style. I love it. Yeah, I'm the same way, man. But to add context, when I moved out here, I did spend a lot of money. It put a big dent in my pockets and my bank account. So I was like, you know what? Guaranteeing myself a couple hundred bucks, a couple thousand bucks would be, I think, the most optimal play right now. Of course, me hedging. If I didn't hedge, I would have won it anyway. So it's that always happens too. Yep. I, I've probably going to make this up, but what would you say is the percentage of times people cash out or hedge, but their initial ticket would have been the right, right side? I mean, there's no way to know, but that's kind of the whole point is like, if you didn't like the bet, you shouldn't have made it in the first place. Right. Right. So why are you cashing out now for less money than you thought you were going to make when you first made the damn bet? You know, it just shows such a lack of confidence in, <laughs> in the bet that you made. Like if you're getting a cash out or if you have an opportunity to hedge, that means that you're winning. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, Good for you. You know, you're doing, you're, it's, everything's going great. Yeah, there's variance. It could cause you to lose this bet, but that's part of it. You know, that's part of variance. Every time you hedge, every time you um, cash out, you're giving up expected value. Expected value that you had in your hand, in your lap. That's like real money. You know, that's real value that you let go um, because you got scared. And scared money can't win. <laughs> that's a fact. Shouldn't have made the bet. Shouldn't yeah. have made the bet if you thought, if you, if you didn't think it was a good bet, you shouldn't have made it. If you thought it was a good bet, then hang in there and let it ride. Yeah, dude. I feel as if, me, all the times that I have hedged, and it, it's it's very frequent. I would say like during the football season, it happens maybe two times. Like I, I really just let it happen, whatever happens, you know, let it's it It's a big parlay and it's a significant portion of your bankroll and your, you know, what you make versus what you wagered. You, you know, I can make a case for hedging for sure, right? If you got a big parlay working and, you know, you can hedge out of a big chunk of it and it really will make a big difference in your bankroll. I, I don't have any problem with that. I sh I'm not trying to be like a, <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to be like all macho about it. Like, sure. But most of the time, there's not much of a reason. Yeah. And I feel as if every time that I have hedged, my initial bet 
probably hits like 80% of the time. It's like, damn, I just punted away those two, $300 or whatever it was. But you're right. If it's a substantial amount, like if you wager $20 to win 5,000 and the last leg of your parlay is that, it's like, yeah, you know what? Maybe make some money, profit off that. But then on the flip side, I have a friend of mine who's like, dude, it's $20. That $20 isn't going to change anything for me. Right. Whereas if it does end up cashing out, now we're talking, this is like two, three months rent. For the most part. Yeah, like you see these people with these like insane parlays that are millions of dollars or whatever, and they're like, should I cash out or not? Yeah, cash that out. It's going to change your life. Cash right, it out. Right, right. Because you're not a professional or whatever. You don't doing this in the, you know, you don't have a bankroll. You're just having fun and you just had a life changing amount of money and cash it out and take take the money and run it. Fine, you know, but, but I, you know, I think that uh, one thing you could do is just track it, mm-hmm. right? You should start tracking it. If you really are curious about this, track every time you are in one of those positions, what would have the result of would have been, I bet you that the amount of money you left on the table, bike, even if you don't actually hedge, even if you decide to sweat it out, track how much you would have left on the table, you know, versus what you would have lost if you let it right. It will, it'll always, you know, you will always have lost more money and missed opportunity than in bets, especially if you're betting these parlays where you're betting a little to win a lot. Mm. Because what you stand to lose by not hedging is so small versus what you stand to gain if you don't hedge, which is a much bigger chunk of money. So over the long run, you're going to find that, uh, that you gave up a lot more value in hedging than by not. I am so clipping that part and sending it to all my buddies that always tell me about hedging because almost verbatim, that's what I always say the same thing. It's like your, your, your EV, you're getting rid of that. And it's very important to try to save that and not. You already risked the, the, the bet. Exactly. You got to kiss that goodbye when it's, yeah. there, you know what I mean? Like you made the investment. It's, it's, if you lost it, you lost it. So, yeah. that, you know, stop being afraid about, oh, but I might lose my initial bet especially if you're one of these parlay betters, mm. especially because you're risking a little to win a lot. You know, if you're not, if it's a big, a big bet, you know, uh, that you made where the investment you made at the front end is significant, I would question why you made the bet to begin with. <laughs> Why'd you make the bet? If you didn't feel good about it and, you, and it was too much for your bankroll. You shouldn't have made it. Yeah. Where would you say we are with sports betting right now? We're in the last quarter. We're coming up on the last quarter of 2022, heading into 2023. It's significantly changed from the first time that we linked up in 2018 when that got passed in New Jersey and then it got legalized in New York and then the floodgates opened. You saw it needed to happen in a, in a big, powerful state. Not then, you know, New York, it happening really opened up the floodgates to all these other states. And you started seeing that. People realized, especially New York realized like, $900 million annually was going to New Jersey from New Yorkers. They want a piece of that. Yeah. And then you started seeing all these other states are like, holy shit, there's a lot of money up for grabs. Where are we right now from what you're gathering with sports betting? I think that, yeah, we're just waiting for California. And I think that, and I mean, you had said this before, but it's, it's right that uh, um, once California falls, it's, it's, you know, that's the big market. That's what everybody's waiting for, right? I mean, the California is like a whole country. In itself, mm. So, uh, it won't matter what happens because, you know, in terms of the rest of the states, these small, small market states. So the, uh, the, the California is the last one to fall. Other than that, I feel like we're, where we're at right now is we basically have pretty much almost the whole country mm. has some access to sports betting. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. You know, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? You know, do we have more people gambling now than we did before? You know, is this, you know, is there some sort of social ill associated with this? Is this, is it good because it's created a lot of uh, tax revenue? It's created a lot of opportunities for, for um, people to get into uh, sports media, sports business, created opportunities, people become professional betters, whatever. 
you know, I don't know. I think those are, you know, I think those are more interesting questions to me rather than these questions about like the sports betting industry, because the sports betting industry has always existed. All that's happened, the only difference is that now <laughs> it's being you know, covered by mainstream media. Well, it's now it's corporate. I mean, we've all, you know, you and I've talked about this before, but like I've been betting on sports since, you know, I since I can remember, I, I didn't need the Supreme Court <laughs> to right. tell me I, could, I, should, I can bet on sports. What the Supreme Court did was they made it so that corp- I can bet with corporations instead of bet with like a guy I know. And um, is that a good thing or a bad thing, right? I don't know. Like, I think that uh, there's something good about betting with somebody you know. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, so, you know, versus betting. There's with- also some bad though, too. Depends on the guy. Right. And also, <laughs> also my favorite thing is ever since it got legalized, I have never used the bookie since. Mm-hmm. It's just, to me, it's comforting knowing that, all right, I have an extra $200 this weekend. I'll gamble it. I'll never not gamble. Like that's, it's, I love doing it. And I've been able to control it with the content, right? I used to, I had a bad phase from like 21 to 25. Spending a lot of money, losing a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And once I started creating content, it was a way to get my fix when David would hit me up on Twitter, like, dude, good call on the Bears plus seven. I made some money on that. I was like, oh, my audience is benefiting if they're gambling and I'm getting the same rush. Like, I want my audience to win because then David's telling Billy and Joe, yo, check out this kid. He's, he's, you know, he's pretty accurate with his picks. I like his content. So to me, I eased up on the betting like week to week. I've always bet on futures. I'm a big futures guy. I, I love remember, it. Yeah. And to me, it's, you know, you risk a little to win a lot, which is a big appeal to like the big parlays that you see. Nine player props, nine anytime touchdown scores, $10 to win 100,000. People love those. Very, very difficult to hit. That's why those odds are, you know, 2,000 to one and whatnot. But to me, futures was a way to be able to monitor something throughout the whole year. You have a strong take on something, you could bet it. I remember the year that we we met, I had I had bet the Chiefs and the Eagles to make it to the Super Bowl. Chiefs ended up winning the Super Bowl. Eagles, I don't even think made the playoffs that year. But those are the kind of things. And the comparison that I make is to yearly fantasy football. If you're a yearly fantasy football player and you're playing with your buddies back home, your college friends, whatever it might be, you're risking a hundred dollars. Say, that's uh, I think I read that's like the average size of a consider a big money league. You're following that for five to six months, right? From about Labor Day weekend until Christmas is usually when the championship is. That's basically a futures bet. So to me, it was able to help me get rid of that addiction of the gambling and the sports betting by creating the content. So I know I kind of went on a tangent there, but to me, this idea that because it's going to get legalized and it's more acceptable, it's covered by mainstream media, more people are going to do it. Is that a bad thing? Well, you know, everything old is new again. I mean, this is something I think about a lot. Like this, this moment that we're in where people, there's, there's quite a few people who don't know about gambling who are definitely like clutching at their pearls about gambling and saying, well, uh, oh, this is bad because now all these people are gambling now. But, you know, in the 1970s, early 1980s, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember this character, but like Jimmy the Greek used to be on the mm-hmm. wide world of sports and talk about football games and stuff. And they'd ask him, they'd ha- have him on ABC, talk about what his picks were for the weekend. You know, this, this, this idea that people, that the sports um, media establishment, I mean, they used to put the point spreads in the newspaper for a long time. 
there was a, a, a wave that kind of rolled over. I don't know when it was. It had to have been in like the 1980s where that stuff kind of disappeared, right? But that up until then, gambling, sports gambling and sports were much more intertwined and much more public, even though it was, it was illegal. And then it got to where in the 80s and 90s, sports casters really gave a wink and a nod at, at what the spread was or what the total was, but they wouldn't actually call it out, which is, I think, sort of a, a relic of an age of span of about 20 to 30 years there from the 80s to the early. That's where there was a taboo around gambling, but it wasn't always there. I think people don't seem to always remember that or know that, that that taboo wasn't always there. Gambling actually didn't always have this taboo associated with it. It used to be a much more kind of out in the open thing, even celebrated thing, right? I mean, I always, t- I always like point to folks and say, when, pe- I, when I'm making this point to people, I always point to the musical Guys and Dolls, which was like this hit Broadway musical, which was made into a hit Hollywood movie. The only time Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando ever did a movie together was for Guys and Dolls, a movie where it was just about where we're going to have a craps game tonight. You know what I mean? Like gambling used to be a much more, uh, 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 it was a much more of a part of the fabric of American culture, particularly around sports and leisure, but it vanished, right? And now we're seeing it come back mm-hmm. where that taboo is sort of, fading away. That's happening with a lot of things in our society right now. You know, we see the legalization of marijuana in so many states around the country. Uh, so, you know, I think this is a part of that, this sort of easing of these like um, kind of moral restrictions we've put on ourselves around this stuff. But, um, but you know, I, I don't, I say everything old is new again, because I remember growing up, every commercial was about like a 900 number you could call to get picks. You know, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but like all during, during sports shows, You'd see all these ads where it was like some tout saying, call 1-900 or whatever and get my picks. You'd open up the sports pages. There'd be ads in the sports pages for touts. That stuff went away too. But like, I'm old enough to remember when that stuff was big, you know, and now it's kind of coming back. So I, I just think everything old is new again. We've kind of been here before. Like I said before, the only real difference to me is that we bet with corporations. I, I still, I bet with all the regulated books, but I'd say that the majority of the gambling I do is cross booking with friends. I don't even, I don't bet with like a bookie. You know what I mean? Like some guy who's like a bookmaker who's like, got a big, big sheet or whatever. It's that me and other gamblers that I know and friends of mine, we just cross book. You know what I mean? So it's like, if I, if I, if I like the Ravens and I know somebody likes the bills, I'd rather bet with my friend and we negotiate a number and a price. Yeah, no vague. Well, we can, usually we come with a no vague number. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. We, we, so there's a no vague number and we, we, we negotiate over what the spread will be. Boom. I got a bet. I got a no vague bet with somebody at a, an amount I want, at a number I want. And I don't got to worry about, you know, <laughs> the IRS. I don't got to worry about, right, you know, right, right. I don't got to worry about the sports, but I don't really worry about how I cash out, any of that kind of stuff. And that's a majority of what I do anyway. So I think that like that stuff's always existed and it always will exist. Right. But, but now we have all these big corporations in the game. So I think there's some good and bad. I think it's good that like, you know, that, 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 that sports betting companies create a lot of value for us with bonuses and promotions and stuff like that and boosts and everything like that. I definitely jump on that stuff when I Hell see it yeah. for sure. Well, there, back in New York, we were calling it the Caesar stimulus check Yeah, when they first <laughs> came out and they were giving people $1,500 deposit bonuses. Like, yep. Yeah, of course we're going to take advantage of that. Are you kidding me? It was, it was amazing. I want to circle back to what you were saying about like the Jimmy the Greek characters. They would always work around the point spreads by not mentioning the point spread. Right? Like it was, uh, it was amazing to see when I would go back and watch these videos. And there's a dope movie I think it's called Two for the Money Two with Matthew money, McConaughey, yeah. Yeah. who he's a handicapper with uh, Al Pacino, I think yep. it was. One of my favorite movies. And that's very similar to what you're saying. You know, you open up the newspaper, you call in these numbers and you get these picks from these guys. But back in the day, the way they would do it is if they knew that the line on the game was, you know, say it was a six point game, right? 
Bears are playing the Packers and the Packers are six-point favorites. They would never say, oh, take the six points or, you know, they're going to cover the six. They would say something like, ah, I think the Bears are going to keep it close. I, I, I can see it being a field goal game. You're listening to that and you're saying, oh, David, he's a tout. I respect his opinion. He's known as a sports betting guy. He's saying the Bears are going to keep it close. Let me take the six points. On the flip side, Nick on the same show might be saying, oh, the Packers are going to win by two scores. Oh, double digits. Got it. Let me take, mm-hmm. let me give the six points. Mm-hmm. So there was ways that they would work around it. But now it's, I mean, every, every network now has their own gambling show or betting show, you know? So it's, it's interesting, man. I like what you said. What's old is new. What would you say about, is, do you feel like there's a difference between gambling and betting? Because I, I, I think so. Well, yeah. I mean, I assume what you mean by that question is like, are you really gambling if you're gambling with the best of it, right? If you've, if you've got a, um, an edge or like you're gambling with positive expected value. Yeah, you're still gambling. You're still taking a risk. I think a more interesting question is, or a more interesting way to sort of think about this question is, you know, if you make an investment, right? Like you buy a house or a car or life insurance <laughs> or you uh, buy a stock, is that gambling? Mm. Right? Because you take a risk. So is everything, is, is gambling really just about the risk? Or, or are we trying to say something else? Are we saying that gambling is when you take a bet where you have the worst of it, right? Even in that situation, a lot of the things we do in life that we don't think of as gambling are probably gambling. So I, I'm, I, I think this is, a, this is a question that I think about a lot, right? About what is gambling and what is the real, what is it that differentiates what you and I are talking about today, betting on sports or what people do here in the win, you know, when they come here to play a game for money versus what we do with our money every day in our lives, mm. right? Whether we're, in, whether we're putting our money into a 401k, buying a house, deciding to get life insurance, you know, shopping around and extend a warranty for my car. What's the difference? I'm taking the money I have and I'm investing it in something that I think is going to make me some money back, right? Is it because what I'm doing here is for entertainment and recreation? What I'm doing there seems to have some sort of practical value to it. I mean, maybe, but like there are people that come out here and they do this for a living, you know? So that's like what my show is about. That's kind of like, you know, a a real kind of um, animating question in my life. Is like what what makes somebody a gambler? You know what makes something a gamble or like a, you know a, a good bet, a good risk to take. So I I don't have a great answer for you, but it is something I think about a lot, and I could sit here and talk to you about it for a whole hour if you want. Yeah, man, I I love the show that you do too. Gamblers season two is up now. Season one I love. I listen listen to every episode. Actually, I sent you a, a picture. It was on the plane uh-huh. when I was coming over here one time. It was uh, Spotify on on Delta, I believe it was. Yeah, it was Delta. They had uh, your podcast. I was like, oh, shit, this is pretty cool, man. <laughs> how, uh, how was it doing season two? Because season one, my favorite episode and the one that I related to the most was Phil Galfond, mm-hmm. the poker player. Because mm-hmm. I was an online poker kid. I remember I told you the story of I got a gift card for my 21st birthday. Was it 20? No, it might have been. Bef- it was probably before that because I was still in college. And it was right before Black, Black Friday. Mm-hmm. No, Black Monday. Black Monday? Friday. Black Friday. Yeah, yeah. When all the online poker books shut down, I turned $250 into like $11,000. And I just left it on there. And I remember telling my parents, I'm going to just play poker full time. Like, this mm-hmm. is my thing. And then lost it all. Never tried to get it back just because it was so chaotic. But that was my favorite episode that you did. But the new season just dropped now. What has been some of your favorite things about doing this kind of content? Well, the first season of Gamblers came out during COVID, or at least we started producing it before the pandemic started. 
And so I was able to kind of do the, I had a whole, like, I think I had like 10 episodes planned. I had all these different people lined up. We were going to do a lot of cool stuff. And then, um, and then after, I think the second we, we finished, we kind of wrapped up the second episode and then the pandemic hit. Mm. Like I remember being out here in Vegas doing that episode and watching on the news about the coronavirus, seeing it on TV while I was out here and being, what is this? You know what I mean? And then like a couple weeks later it was on, you know, the NBA had canceled. So like, the rest, so we didn't know what to do. And, and at first, the, um, the ring, I do it for the Ringer Podcast Network and for Spotify. And they were like, I guess we're not going to do the show because well, we don't. And if you remember in the beginning of the pandemic, people weren't sure how long this was going to yeah, last. Yeah. People were like, well, we'll see if this passes, right? They hit us for two weeks, for two years. Yeah, right. So for a minute, we were like, well, we'll wait. And then a couple months go by, a couple months go by. We're like, you know, this may be the rest of our lives. So let's figure out a plan B for the show. Because <laughs> so we finished, we, re, we restructured the season, came up with new guests. And we did the rest of that season basically with shows that I could do from my basement. So the Phil Galfon show was, Phil was a lifesaver because what that episode was about was how he was um, in doing this uh, challenge online, playing Pot Limit Omaha with this guy uh, for big money. And, and Phil had, lo- you know, he had lost like near, nearly a million dollars and he came all the way back and won. And it was kind of his big comeback story. It was very exciting and people were all agog about it. So that became a cool story to use and it was one we could do because it was all happening in cyberspace. I, this season is completely different because we were able to do a season the way we always intended to do the first season, which was me going out in the world with a microphone and doing things, right? Because the first season was really me talking to people for the most part. It was interviews with fascinating people, right? And them telling their life stories. And I think all the people in, episode, in season one are fascinating, brilliant people. But I it's too bad that I wasn't able to actually do what we wanted to do, which was go hang out with them for a while and kind of do a little documentary about their life. And that's what this season is. It's really more like that. It's like these sort of short documentaries, um, audio documentaries about professional gamblers. And, you know, it's cool. I mean, I went to Monte Carlo, uh, to Monaco. I, um, you know, I came out here a few times. I, I went, I, I came out here to go play golf with a big time golf hustler here in Vegas with some people and a bunch of poker players for like a lot of money. Uh, we have an episode about chess. We have another episode about poker, but it's set down in Texas instead of here in Vegas. And uh, right now, this week and last week was a two-parter about Rufus Peabody, who is um, a sports better, and it's all about him betting $2 million in the Super Bowl. Um, in week one, our first episode of the season was about drag racing and mm. people betting money on drag racing. So People bet on everything, right? Well, that's kind of the, that's kind of, I, ho- I think so. I think that's part of the, the fundamental, like, sort of, uh, premise of the show is that people can bet on anything and do. Yeah. And and to me, I want to find interesting, different types of ways that people gamble for a living. Like this episode I had this season about this chess, this chess player. This is a guy who's made his living his whole life gambling on chess, right? Does he make millions of dollars gambling chess? No, but he makes a living gambling on chess. And to me, that's a professional gambler, right? His life is just as fascinating to me as Rufus Peabody betting $2 million on the Super Bowl or this guy betting $200 on a game of chess, I'm, I'm, I'm equally interested in both of those things, you know, because it's somebody who is playing a game, you know, and they're playing it at a very high level and they're making their livelihood just playing that game, doing nothing else, living their life by, by their wits. Mm. You know what I mean? Literally, like they are, they live their life by betting on themselves that they can do this thing better than someone else. Those are the characters that this show is about and that interest me at every walk of life. And I think that I had to get even the ringer to early on to know that, that that's my vision for this show is I don't want to just profile millionaires. Yeah, there are a lot of 
a lot of successful gamblers who make a lot of money, but I don't want this show to just be about them. I want it to be about people at every sort of walk of life, you know, every type of culture, you know, every type of game, every mm. type of, th- so I'm, that's my hope is that I can find, I even got a guy in season one that bet on stock options and GameStop and all that stuff, right? So I'm trying to cast a very wide net. No, that's a good approach too, because it also makes it a lot more relatable too, right? Because everyone knows about the guy who's a professional better and he's won millions of dollars, but how many of them are there? It's a very small amount, as opposed to the people that kind of do this for fun and they've been able to, you know, they, they buy certain things. Like me, what I like doing when I hit a big bet is I like to buy something that I normally wouldn't. You know, yeah. like recently I just bought a new laptop because my laptop just shit the bed. Speakers blew out. It was a nightmare. I tried to get a fix. It would have cost me couple hundred dollars. I'm like, you know what? At this point, let me just buy a new one. And I also needed a new one. Too. It was just like so outdated. But I, it's, a, it's a fascinating approach to the to this show. And I enjoy it a lot. And my favorite thing about gamblers is it'll, you can also hear the excitement in your voice too when you're talking to all these people also. Yeah, I get, I get, I mean, sometimes I get a little bit starstruck by some of these folks because I find every one of them to be heroic in a mm-hmm. way, you know? And I've stayed friends with some of them too. And uh, I really appreciate that people, you know, I like that when I'm able to like kind of also b- build relationships with, because it's also a small world, you know? Right. And what was really interesting about this season was when I went to Monaco to the World Backgammon Championships, people there knew Michael Saul, who was the guy who I did the gin episode about in, in season one. They knew him. When I do, you know, and uh, it's like all, when I did the golf episode, uh, people in the sports betting world, all in the horse racing world, all know that guy. You know, like it's a it's a small world. There's a lot of overlaps. You know, but I, I have an episode this season about Andrew Nimi. He's a poker player and he's a vlogger. And you know, the stuff you were saying earlier in the episode about content and creating content and stuff like he has a very similar story in that he was living out here in Vegas, being a making his living from playing poker, but playing kind of very middle stakes. You know what I mean? Not high stakes poker, but he was grinding out a living. A comfortable but you know modest living playing you know one three to two five no limit hold'em in vegas and uh he started making a vlog about his life and it was kind of like this is what it's like this is the life of a regular poker grinder in vegas and it got really popular and he realized like oh there's an audience for this and so he kind of became a personality because of youtube and because of uh the content that he was making about his life and He's since gone on to really grow and become very popular and famous. He now owns a, pers- a piece of um, a card room in Texas. But what I, the reason I wanted to do an episode on Andrew is that Andrew to me represented kind of the, what's cool about him and what I think he has so many fans is because he's relatable. Because he's not someone who is winning millions of dollars, driving around in Bentleys, like out here in Vegas, you know, like he's a guy that just makes a comfortable, decent living. And he's doing what he cards. enjoys. He's living the the life of Riley, right? And and he's a hero to regular lunch pail, you know, poker players, and so they they love him. They flock to him. He becomes kind of their ambassador, not you know Phil Hellmuth or any of these other guys who are just these like untouchable celebrities. Andrew is kind of like this Pied Piper. So I won't spoil the whole episode, but like a lot of what you were saying earlier in this episode is kind of like his story and why I why I wanted to do it on him because I think that the more relatable the character, the better. I don't want to just do a documentary series about a bunch of people who live these like strange and well lives of wealth and, you know, and luxury. Right. This ain't lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, it's, and so I want to show people that I think are very intelligent and, um, you know, are, and, and are problem solvers and, and game players. And, uh, 
people who think differently about risk than the rest of us because I think they can teach us something about life. What's your favorite sport to bet on? Sport? Yeah. Well, I like betting on horses. That's always been a passion of mine is horse racing. Um, and I like betting the NFL, even though it's stupid to bet on the NFL. You know, it's, not, it's like not the best sport to for gambling on, but I like the NFL, so I bet on it. Um, I think the NFL is perceived because it's the most popular that it's the easiest. Yeah, but it's actually the toughest. It's the toughest. There's a lot of variants. There's turnovers that get put in. There's injury reports that get factored in. One score games is is one of my favorites. Like the prime example is the Raiders. Last year, they cleaned up. They won all their games in overtime. This year, they're 0-3. 0-3 also in one-score games. Like, I think they've lost all three of their games by a combined 13 points, it was, or 14 points. It's, you know, it's two touchdowns that they've lost two games. So, three games. So, it's... There's a lot that goes into that. And I think because it's so popular and we have fantasy, now we got the player props that everyone loves. You got these crazy parlays and it's once a week. It's easier for you to consume. It's perceived as not only the most popular, which it is, that it's the easiest. Yeah, which could be farther from the truth. I mean, yeah. So I, this season I'm writing the NFL uh, matchups and handicapping column for the New York Times. And in this week's column, I kind of write about a little bit about variance mm. and, and that the NFL, um, that one of the things that I think makes it a difficult gambling proposition, but also makes it a difficult game for the teams to play is that it's such a high variance sport. There are, the NFL season is relatively very short compared to other professional sports seasons, right? It's just stretched out over yes. a long period of time. Because they play once a week. Right. And, so, and then the NFL playoffs are a single elimination playoff. So those two things combine to create a very high-variance situation, meaning a lot of games in the NFL are decided by very weird things. A turnover, a blown call, an injury, weather, right? Think about week one with the game with, uh, with um, San Francisco and, and Chicago. The Bears, yeah. All right, so that was, weather was the biggest, imp- biggest thing about that game. Yep. And that game could end up in, in making a huge impact on San Francisco's season now. So there's a lot of things in the NFL where small things like that can throw a game. And then that one game has an outsized impact on what that team's season will be like, their playoff chances, their division, you know, situation. And then when you get to the playoffs, you know, I mean, think about how many times in your life you've seen teams race into the playoffs, number one seed, best team in the NFL. And then some, they get upset in the play, you know, some crazy thing happens. They don't even make it to the Super Bowl. That happens all the time. Don't even look too far. Last year, both number right. one seeds bounced in bounce the first, in the first round. Titans and the AFC and the Packers. Right. So this, this is variance, right? It's a high variance game compared to basketball where you have a best of seven series over the course of the tournament. The, the more games you play, the more likely the best team will win over that. Correct. Because, yeah. because it takes a lot of variance. So in the NFL, it's tough. It's tough because you could have a badass team uh, firing on all cylinders, and then these little things can happen. that can Because the other thing about the NFL is that the games are all very close, that there's a lot of, there is parity. See, people don't think of the NFL as being a, a league that has parity because, because we see these kind of lopsided records or whatever. But there is a lot of parity, right? Uh, that we see that in the point spreads. Last week, there was not a single point spread last week that was more than a touchdown. Mm. That shows that, you know what I mean? Like, it could have just been those matchups that week. But I think it's this week too. I think there's one double-digit point spread this week. So that shows some parity. The reason we don't think of it as having a lot of parity is because there is so much randomness that happens. But the, the teams in the NFL are very 
close in ability and and because they you know and 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 salaries that they uh, or um uh, you know how much money the teams are spending on their players versus a sport like baseball where there's very little parity right so there is this kind of parity that exists but then the randomness that comes into a game separates two very even teams go into a game and they'll play a very evenly matched game the whole time and then some one thing in that game can set the whole thing so i'm saying all this to say that's why that's one reason why it's a very tough sport to bet because you're, all your handicapping can go out the window with one fumble. Yeah. The other thing that makes it a really terrible betting proposition is that the market is incredibly efficient. There is so, it is such a liquid market. It's a global market. People bet this sport all over the world for big money. And the lines, the, sports, the, the, the spreads in these games get to a true number very fast. There, there's market agreement on these numbers pretty quick, pretty early in the week. And so that means that when you're betting into these lines at your sports book, the line's been hammered. It's pretty true. And the truer that line is, then the more juice you're paying, the less value that you have in your bet, right? You think you're getting a good line. You're not getting a good line. You don't, you, they didn't make a mistake. You don't know something that, that the people who are betting, you know, $10,000, $50,000 a pop at Pinnacle didn't already know. You, you, don't, you don't. I don't care how much you watch football. I don't care how much ESPN you watch. You don't have any information that the market didn't already have. So when you get that number, that number's been beaten into shape already. The people who make the most money betting on sports, they don't even watch football, right? Yeah. The guys I know, you know, the guys I know that, uh, that, that are pros, that make a lot of they don't watch these games. They play Steam. They watch the number screen. They watch the odds screen and they see where's that line moving and they try to grab the numbers that, miss, that have, have missed the wave, right? They watch Pinnacle. They watch Chris Sports and they say, okay, when they move the number, that's because they took a bet they respect. So I'm going to go bet the old number before it moves at all these other places, or I'm going to hit the, the bookies and hit the, you know, that's how these guys make money. They don't, they don't sit around all day handicapping games. They think handicappers are suckers, right? So like, that's the thing about the NFL is that the NFL is much more like playing the stock market than it is like betting sports. It's very hard to find an edge. So I think for most of us, what most of us are doing is we are just betting for fun and we're donating the VIG. And we're patting ourselves on the back like we're experts. Yeah. You know what I mean? But really, we're just out here having a good time. We're not going to know something that the market didn't already know. And I, I said, look, last night, I scratched my head because I was writing the column. I could not figure out this Washington-Dallas game. I could not figure out the, the number. It seemed off to me. To me, it just felt like, based on my sense as a football fan, that the commanders were going to beat the brakes. I mean, we're going to get the brakes beat off of them, right? That they just, they take too many sacks. Dallas gives too many sacks. Yeah. To me, it felt like this is weird, right? But the market feels like those two teams are much closer. closer. In fact, the market thinks that Washington might be a better team on a, in a lot of categories, right? Offensive categories relative to Dallas. So like I have this recency bias. I watch the games. I think after I watch the game that I know something about this team. But then when I look at the market, a very efficient, very liquid market, and they're saying something else, part of me thinks, I'm betting that number. They're wrong there. But then part of me says, pump the brakes. I might be wrong. I'm yeah. not smarter than the market, right? So then, so then the question is, well, let me just get the best number I can get, right? I made a decision. This is the team I like. I'm going to try to find the best number. Well, I think an interesting thing about the NFL, and I always harp on this, it's the standalone primetime factor. I think that's a legit thing. And I've, I've probably been the most successful in... Whatever happens on Sunday night, Monday night, Thursday night football, I weigh that heavily, sometimes the complete opposite of what everyone's seen, right? So, for example, 
one of my favorite bets that I made was the Packers in week two. They were 10-point favorites against the Bears. And it's just what the conversation was. Oh, the Bears, they upset the Niners. They were a seven-point dog. Maybe everyone was down on the Bears coming into the year. And then you mentioned it. You had some turnovers. You had Trey Lance playing for the first time in who knows how long. Starter. The pressure on him. And you also had it was in a monsoon. And then what do you see? You see the Packers. No, Devontae Adams. They can't move the ball against Minnesota. Devontae, that same day against the Chargers, gets like 10. Well, yeah, against the Chargers with, with the Vegas Raiders. He puts up like 10 for 147 and a touchdown. And you're saying to yourself, oh my God, the Packers aren't going to be able to move the ball. And you have the primetime factor. That stuff weighs a lot for me. When you see a good team, like you said, it's, sometimes it's just not your day, right? Any given Sunday, any given Monday, things happen. Uh, a turnover in the first snap of the game. Remember the Super Bowl, the Broncos and the Seahawks? First snap, it's a safety over Peyton's head. That's it. They were rattled after that. Seattle gets the ball back. They score. So it sets the tone for the whole game. So to me, I think those standalone games, especially when it's a good team that just lays an egg, that weighs heavily into the line the next week. You see that happen all the time. And it's a lot of times it's not always right. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I, I, after everything I just said about how it's an efficient market and the number approaches, you know, agreement pretty quickly, that's not to say the number's always right. In fact, I think in week one, I think it was week one, there was only one game that, that landed within a half a point of the spread. The numbers were pretty far off of the spread, right? So that's, so I'm not saying the number's always perfect. What I'm saying is that, the number has reached a, a place where, you know, the, it's sort of price discovery, right? The, the market makers have figured out this is the price. We think this is the fair price. I will push back just a little bit on week one because I feel as if week one might be the hardest week for you to handicap of all the weeks. It's true. And from talking to some people that do set lines, they, they agree with that assessment because we're basing all this stuff off, what, one legit half in the preseason. And then what we saw from these teams nine months ago so week one, I always feel as if if you have strong conviction of certain teams from a, a long-term standpoint, that go way heavily into the line. Like in week one, I went 5-0 and in my contest, and it was because I was higher on certain teams than the right. market was. And you could get a huge edge in that. Over time, like now the numbers are becoming more accurate. Like you said, the Washington and Dallas game, you're saying one thing, but then you're also what you saw. You're like, holy shit, the— the Eagles, they sacked them nine times, and the Cowboys now have the best pass rush in the league. I saw them just dominate the Giants on Monday Night Football. We never know what we're looking at. We don't know if what we're looking at is a bad team playing badly or a good team playing good. You right. know? And that's always a hard thing to figure out is, what am I seeing here? Am I seeing a dominating performance from a good team, or am I seeing a bad team really sucking? Because and so you don't find that out until the end of the season, really, because we don't get enough games to look at these guys. Your point is... Well taken. I wrote about this in my column too about how week one, yeah, we've been betting these games since you know last spring, um, but we really only have preseason to look at. One thing I think we learned this week, this season, is that uh, teams that sat their starters did bad in week one. Yes, and it's just sort of this old truism in the NFL that you sit your starters in preseason. You don't you don't get them hurt. You're, the preseason is an opportunity for the guys to really put on a show to try to get get on the team, whatever. But the teams in the preseason that played their starters in preseason, they came out firing all cylinders on um, week one. And so I think that we may see next season more teams putting their starters in there. And it's something as a gambler to watch for next year on preseason is who's sitting their starters, who's not, because these guys get rusty over the summer. You know, these studies have been done. You know, this is also, 
there's been studies about whether or not players who sit in the preseason get injured in the first few weeks too. The yes. Same type of thing. The, the injuries are more prevalent when you've been sitting or you didn't play through the summer and then you didn't play in preseason. You're, you know, you're more likely to overextend or whatever when you actually get out on the field. So preseason, I think, may be, we may be in the beginning of a moment of seeing preseason become much more meaningful than it has. Two things on what you've been saying, and I agree with you. You look at some of the teams like the Rams came out very sluggish on offense, especially Brady and the Bucks. He had his little hiatus during training camp. You look at Joe Burrow. He had the surgery. Luckily for them, they played the Jets last week, and there was a get-right spot for them. It's a copycat league. McVay is the boy wonder. He's the boy genius. He comes in, and he starts implementing this. I'm not going to play my starters in the preseason. And the Rams, since he got there, have made the playoffs every season that he's been there. And everyone is saying, there's a recipe for success. Don't play your starters. So that's why you're seeing it, the copycat league. And then everyone started doing it. And I agree with you because now I think moving forward, you're going to need to play a little bit. At mm -hmm. least get a driver to win. Because from you to sit on your couch for as many months as you were, and yeah, these guys are working out and whatnot, but it's, it's completely different. You know, like I always, I always like to say how I, back when I was in New York, I would run like 20 to 25 miles a week. You know, I would try to just hit those numbers. And then I would go and I do jujitsu. And in three minutes, I'm out of breath. I'm like, forget all that running that I do. Cause it's different when it's higher intensity. Mm -hmm. It's a more serious thing. You're actually competing as opposed to just doing it on your own. You're a wide receiver. You go to the park where you're quarterback and you're throwing all these routes. It's different where now it's competition. Right? You're going up against a guy who wants to make the team. And now what you've seen a lot of teams also do in the preseason is they have these joint practices the week that they're going to play each other. So there's competition there too because it's not just you going up against your teammate. You're going up against another team. So it's those, those are super interesting to me moving uh, forward in years to come. But also the thing about injuries, man, it was something I definitely wanted to talk to you about. And I got some information here because… I think we are seeing a lot of season-ending injuries. Like Joey Bosa, he's on IR. I think it's for at least a month. Shot Slater, he's out now for the year. I mean, the charges, I'm financially invested in the futures market on them. And those are not looking that good, David, right now. You look at three of their top five players are either going to be out or they are going to be hobbled the rest of the year. Justin Herbert, I don't think is going to be healthy the rest of the way. Is he going to play? Yeah, but we saw him against the Jaguars. He looked awful. And I saw Sterling Shepard yeah. on Monday Night Football. And that kind of inspired this conversation I want to have with you because Odell Beckham Jr. was very adamant on Twitter. And something about the turf. And in particular in MetLife, you've seen a lot of guys go down with season-ending injuries. A couple of years ago, the 49ers, after they went to the Super Bowl, they had the year from hell. Like every team has that year from hell. They lost Nick Bosa, Solomon Thomas. They lost these guys to ACL injuries playing at MetLife. The Niners have played back-to-back -back weeks at MetLife. They played the Jets and then they played the Giants. And some numbers here that I want to read to you. Players have a 28% higher rate of non-contact lower extremities when playing on artificial turf. Players have 32% higher rates of non-contact knee injuries playing on turf and a staggering 69% higher rate of non-contact foot or ankle injuries on turf as, as compared to grass. Dude, 69% is wild. If we could guarantee ourselves 69% in picking games, 
we wouldn't do anything else but just gamble. Yeah, it's significant. You know, it's interesting because this is a conversation that they've had in horse racing for a long time about how the surface in horse racing leads to horse injuries and breakdowns, you know. Mm. Um, there was an attempt um, not too long ago to try to move um, dirt surface. You know, a lot of the injuries happen on dirt. They don't even race on dirt in Europe. They only race on grass. The dirt surface is harder on the hooves and it, whatever. I don't want to get all into the weeds. This is what you're asking about. But they changed the surface to a synthetic surface and then they saw that injuries kept like went up even more. You know, they've experimented so much with like what's the right surface. I think it's good that they're looking at the surface because that probably does have a lot to do with impact. These are impact injuries, you know? And so the surface, of course, is going to have a lot to do with impact. But, you know, but they're also just trying to kill these guys. I mean, you know, everything I was saying before about the short seasons and stuff, I mean, you know, these injuries is part of it too. I mean, why was Justin Herbert out there playing when he was clearly hurt at the end of a game that they could not win, right? Why? Well, because part of it is this league has this attitude about people are tough and it's toughness and macho or whatever. But also because like every game is crucially important. You cannot let a game, you know, it doesn't matter if you're down two scores and there's, you know, two minutes on the clock, you're going to go for it. You're going to try to win the game. You can't give up. And that means keep these guys in the game when they're hurt, when they're playing hurt. But I don't think it should, right? I know it's apples to oranges because the NBA is not a contact sport. But I do think that because there's a longer season, there's, a much, there's much more of a willingness to let a player, even a star player, sit and recuperate before you bring them back, even if you're losing games because you know it's a long season and you can get those wins back and you'll, all you got to do is make it in the top eight spots. You know what I mean? Like that's, so that there's a much more of an allowance for players to really heal up before they come back. And in the, in the NFL, there's, there's a real pressure to get them back on the field. Well, I also think that has to do with contracts. I think because in the NFL, the contract is not fully guaranteed, that guy that gets the concussion wants to come out there faster <laughs> yeah. to make sure that he doesn't get cut or he's not asked to take a pay cut. Yeah. Whereas like you mentioned, basketball, baseball, it's fully guaranteed. Right. So at that point, it's all right for me to wait a couple months to get fully healthy. I'm not going to rush back and jeopardize what happened to Durant in the finals against the Raptors where he blows out his Achilles. So it's, it's a weird conversation. And I think, I think something needs to be done because I always thought, ah, you know, it's, it's unfortunate injuries. But then you start talking to, I have a friend of mine who's a, a personal trainer. He opened up his gym up in Rochester and I went to college with him and he studies this stuff like, you know, physical therapy and all that. And he says that there are ways to prevent it and that the turf surface is a way to prevent these. Like yeah. Not having these players play on turf goes a long way. And especially in particular, when it comes to the Sterling Shepard one, that was wild because he was just, he didn't even look like he was going full speed. Yeah. Kind of looked like the play was going far side from him. He's running up to the corner. The corner's not even anywhere near him. And it looks like he just like stepped on glass and then just goes down and ACL now. And for a guy like him in particular, towards Achilles last year, excelled in the recovery process, came back way faster than anyone expected. And then he suffers that. It's unfortunate. I mean, given everything we already know about the sport and what it does to these guys, you know, I feel like there should be more tendency to want to, you know, like, it's shocking to me that they brought Tua back out. You know what I mean? Like, I could not believe it when they brought him back out. How could that, how could he not be in concussion protocol after he's wobbling around on the field like that? When it's he just, collapses If that was there, a boxing match, yeah. the ref would, you know, if that was a UFC fight, the ref would have just jumped on top of him and be like, this is over, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. Waving his arms. But it's an NFL game, so he goes back and comes right back out. And the NFL has pretty strict concussion protocols, so I do not know what's going on that that guy could— 
I, I think even if he passed a concussion protocol, they probably should have let him sit and not come out for the second half. I don't care. But, you know, stakes is high and they got to get out here and win this game. And they did. And he put up a heroic effort. But it worries me because we, of everything we know about CTE and everything we know about head injuries in this sport. So it's just, it's a rough sport and the stakes are too high because there's, there's you know, there's too few games and every game matters so, so much. Yeah. Yeah. And every, every player matters so, so much. Yeah, for sure. And then you look at this weekend in particular, you have a matchup that I think is clearly the game of the weekend. And it's the Buffalo Bills coming off their first loss. They're going to play the Baltimore Ravens. Ravens are a three-point underdog. Harbaugh as a dog, especially with Lamar, if they're playing at home, that, that's already, I've already entered that in my contest and I'm hoping I can get that to three and a half because those lines, it, you know, you can edit your picks until it does lock on, on uh, Sunday. But to me, this, this is a fascinating matchup because I personally think these are the two best teams in the AFC. Sure. And I know they have one loss, both of them to the same team. Like Miami has beaten both of these teams. I don't want to say fluke wins for Miami, but the Ravens one was a fluke win, right? They scored 28 points in the fourth quarter. That's never happened. It's, it's another example I'm in before. Were we watching Miami dominate that second half or were we watching Baltimore give up in the second half? Right? We don't know, really. I yeah. mean, we'll know as the season goes on what we saw there. But my, I agree with you. My inclination is that what we saw there was Baltimore run out of gas, not Miami turn up the heat. Yeah, and I, and I talked about that with uh, Joe Fan on the Monday show. If you guys haven't checked that out, check that out. We spent a lot of time on Miami talking about this idea of them really changing how football is being played, where they're really beating teams with speed and they're fatiguing you from a cardio stamina standpoint, as opposed to the Derrick Henry, Brandon Jacobs, 260 pound back fourth quarter weighing on you physically. So it's a different approach that Miami's taking. And now both of these teams, now they're playing each other, both have lost to the Miami Dolphins. And I think Miami's in a really fascinating spot on Thursday. By the time this pod comes out, people might have already seen this game play out. I think Miami's going into a really tough spot. Tua hasn't thrown yet this week. The defense played 90 snaps, and now they got to play on Thursday. We talk about player safety. You got these guys playing on Thursday. That's out of control as well. And you got a Bengals team saying, you know, we just rode the ship now where we beat the Jets, and we have a not a hobbled, but a little bit of a questionable spot. I think it's the spot of the year right now in the NFL, taking the Bengals on Thursday night. But circling back to this Bills and Ravens game, I really think that in the AFC, them two are the cream of the crop. Sure, I don't think that's a controversial opinion. Not only are the best teams, they're the two best quarterbacks. They're the two leading candidates for MVP. And so, you know, it's going to be a great game. I mean, there's a lot of good games this weekend, but that game is, you know, that's going to be a wild one to watch. And I think we get a lot of points too. I mean, what's the total on that game? I think it's one of the, it's like 50. It's over 50. Yeah, I think it's one of the very few. I think there's one other game that's in the 50s. But right. this one is expected to be high scoring. The Falcons game is expected to be in the 50s. And then the, the, the fascinating thing about this one is these two quarterbacks from that draft class were considered the biggest wild card slash projects. Mm -hmm. No one thought Josh Allen was going to be this. They, the scouting report on him was he's a very raw prospect. Mm -hmm. He has the upside to be a top guy, but it could also crash and burn for him. And then we know about all this stuff with Lamar. Lamar was the last one taken from that draft class. And then you look at the other guys that they were paired with. Is Josh Rosen even in the league anymore? I was holding on stock to him until like three weeks ago when he was still on the roster. Sam Darnold, another one. He... He lost his job to Baker Mayfield, who got let go from the team that drafted him. 
because yep. he wasn't the answer also. And then you look at Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson and you're saying to yourself, the two guys that had the most question marks going into this draft and into their careers are the most successful. And in one sense, Lamar Jackson is way more accomplished and successful than Josh Allen. Josh Allen, every close game he's been in has not gone his way. Another one on Sunday, which was one of the reasons why I liked Miami catching six points at the time when I bet them last week. It's because I think Buffalo coming off the back-to-back primetime games where they obliterated mm-hmm. both opponents. And then you have Miami coming in. The weather in South Beach now in the September. The weather was a factor. For sure. Yeah, another one of the things that you mentioned that's a big reason why there's so much variance. And it's interesting because the winner of this game, I think, leaves with the MVP also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, especially if we see what they expect we're going to see, which is a high-scoring game. I mean, if, if somebody comes out of this game with another four touchdown passes or rushing touchdowns, which is with both of these quarterbacks, yeah. you're going to get some rushing touchdowns. Yeah. But the thing is, we could easily equally come out of this game and not really know whether we saw, we have a defense. You know what I'm saying? Like, these questions could still link because they both could put up, uh, you know, impressive performances. That, 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 I mean, yeah, if, if the game is a lopsided affair, it'll leave no doubt. Right. Right? Because then no matter what the other quarterback does the rest of the season, people will remember this game probably. But, but you know, I think that we're, I would bet that we're much more likely to see a high-scoring game where both quarterbacks are putting on a show and we come out of this week not knowing anything. You know, we'll still be debating who's the MVP, right? That's what I think will happen. I think they're both going to put up big numbers. Yeah, and both of these teams are coming in with a couple of concerns in the secondary, like Buffalo losing Micah Hyde for the year. Talked about the continuity with them back there. They still haven't gotten Tredavious White back. And then Baltimore, like, you know, another thing that's the variance, which is I think a perfect word to describe the NFL is, wasn't everyone giving the Ravens an A-plus grade on Kyle Hamilton coming out? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, he's a prototype Baltimore Ravens player, and he's not even a starter for them. And he was their first-round pick. So you just never know. Like, you never know. And with, with draft grades, it's probably my least favorite thing to do and to give out because yeah. it's, I would say it's borderline impossible to really know. I know. I don't understand why there's so much money invested into scouting players. <laughs> in the NFL. And then, you know, it doesn't always, more often than not, all that scouting effort, you know, kind of goes out the window because you've seen over and over again in the NFL, these kind of, un- these, 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 these uh, players that bring down big signing bonuses, big contracts and disappoint. And then these players that come out of nowhere and become big time stars. That happens more in the NFL, I feel like, than it does in other sports. Why? I don't know. Maybe because we don't have whatever they do to scout players. They need to be doing something different. Yeah. I think that actually, I do think I do have one theory, and that's that it's that college football doesn't translate well into professional football. And so, when you're scouting guys who are coming out of college, they're still so young, and their body type is still, you know, they're they're they're, they're still not physically there to compete with the the veterans in the NFL who are so much more physically strong and fast. So, somebody comes out of the NFL or out of college and can be a big time star, and even can you know do well at the combine, but when they get on the field with pros, you know, it's different. Yeah. And I think there are some players who maybe uh, didn't ha- didn't light the world on fire in college, but because of the way that their body has developed, the way they've grown, the, you know, the, the, that, that kind of can make a big deal in the NFL, depending on the position you play, obviously. With quarterbacks, it's a whole different story. I think quarterbacks can come out of college and still succeed in the NFL because they got all the protection. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? But for guys that are playing, you know, uh, more physical positions, I think there's a big gap between college and, and pros that doesn't exist in the NBA or right. in pro baseball. You know what I mean? It's like, more of a physical standpoint than right. anything else. Yeah. And so it takes years to get your body to that place where you're ready for the NFL. So I think that's a big part of why the, the, we see draft busts is that the guys just maybe they don't get their bodies ready. This is a theory. No, I think there's some truth to that. I think it definitely makes sense, though, because you're looking at a kid coming in at 21 years old, and then he got to go up against a dude that's 27. He's been through the NFL regimen. He's mm-hmm. been through the NFL workout plans and, and the programming. And then eventually it just comes down to, like, film study. Yeah. You know, I, I was able to work alongside Will Blackman on a podcast together, and I learned a lot from him from the player's perspective. And he said, ultimately, it comes down to everyone has the physical tools. Like everyone is a professional football player. Right. Where it gets different is what film study are you doing? Well, this is also another difference between college. and This is why college coaches don't work out in the pros too. So this is another example of where college and pro doesn't translate because to be a successful college team, college uh, football teams run completely different types of packages than they do in the NFL. There's, you know what I mean? They, 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 they run the ball a lot more in yep. college still than they do in the NFL. And so that means the defense is lambda. I mean, so you, you come out of college thinking that the game is one way and in the NFL, it's a completely different game. I mean, we see it over, how many times have we seen these big time college coaches show up in the NFL and wash? They always wash. Yeah. They I mean, never, Nick Saban left in the middle of the season. Yeah. yeah. So this is, this happens. And he's the goat in college right, football. Right. It's just a different game. And so I think college players too, coming up under those systems sometimes struggle too. So yeah, it's like, you know, it's two different sports in a way. And I think that might be one of the, one of the sort of um, kind of dents in the armor of the NFL scouting. Um, but, you know, what, what do I know? These guys get paid a lot of money. They know a lot more than I do about that. Let's uh, start winding down this show with, uh, let's give some picks out. Okay. I know you do some work with um, the, you do the NFL picks and preview for the New York Times. New York Times. Right. You're the, the, the w- most read newspaper in the world. You're the yes. most successful <laughs> handicapper. You have the most subscribers of any. That's what handicap. I say. I say, I got nine and a half million paid subscribers. Show me another handicapper that can say that. <laughs> you, won't, you can't find one. So it's, you know, I'm number one. No, I'm, I'm writing the column, but you know, I feel like a little bit unqualified too. I don't consider myself a handicapper. One of the things I'm trying to do with this column is really introduce, the New York Times sports readership are not, you know, they're not, Consider primary, you know, we don't think that the New York Times sports readership are avid gamblers. You know what I mean? There's not a lot of gambling on the New York Times. But I'm trying to introduce them to thinking about the NFL matchups each week from a market perspective, mm-hmm. right? To think, to approach it the same way you'd approach talking about businesses and the stocks and the business pages, right? That that's what we're looking at with each of these games. So yeah, there's some interesting sports stuff going on. There's also some interesting market stuff going on. So let's talk about these two teams and how they match up. But let's also talk about what the market thinks is going to happen here. Where's the money being bet? How's the money being split? What do we see the line? Is the line moving with the money or against it? You know, like those things are yeah. interesting too. Give me your favorite underdog for the weekend. I always, I always give, I have a pod that I do with, uh, with the Patreon and I give out the five plays that I put in my contest. So for this episode, since I have you on, I'm going to give a treat to everyone and I'll just tell you what my, my top three plays are. And it'll be a cool way to just wind this down. But I always give out a money line underdog play. So I'm taking most dogs, most of the dogs. But oh, you want the money line underdog? Yeah, yeah. Who's gonna win straight I up? Have a, I have a spicy one. Oh well, you got to. I mean, I think that Miami's gonna win straight up. But if you, but if you probably get a much better number on Jacksonville 
That's where I'm at. But I think Jacksonville can win straight up and you'll get a better price yes. than betting Miami. So that would be that would be a spicy. Yeah. yeah. I like I like the Jaguars in this spot right here. Yeah, people are feeling better about Jacksonville, but the market still hasn't really adjusted. Like you could you could still find them three to one to win the South, which is crazy to me because coming into the year, one of the things that I said about the AFC South is I am not confident in the Colts and the Titans. I thought my favorite bet in all of football was the under nine and a half for Tennessee. If I can make just one bet and put my entire bankroll on, that would be the one. Well, well done there. But well, so far, let's see. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. But it was just, they lost both their receivers, mm-hmm. regression for the defense, like a lot of things like that. So the Jaguars were interesting because I felt like the only way the Jaguars can make the playoffs would be to win the South because the AFC was so loaded and still is so loaded. And you could have found them at plus 750, plus 800. So it was worthy of taking a stab. And I still feel as if there's that stigma of it being Jacksonville that people are not really buying into. But I think they can catch Philly in a good spot right now. I know it's on the road, but you have a lot of things going for it. You have the Peterson revenge. He's going up against his own team. And a lot of the guys coming out of Jacksonville, they love Doug Peterson, especially with all the chaos that went down with Urban Meyer last year. He is a massive upgrade. I felt like him at 20 to 1, him and and Kevin O'Connell is who I ended up going with for coach of the year. But those were my two favorite plays of coach of the year. And they're going into Philly, a team that he knows really well. He coached Jalen Hurts in his rookie season. So he's familiar with him. A lot of the players on there too. And I think you could see like the promo packages of, of the guys getting up for this game for him. So I think Jacksonville with the points is going to be one of my five plays. But I also think I'm going to take... I always like to sprinkle a team on the money line and if, if I think they could cover. And if it's the right price, I always do that. Like last week, I played the, the Dolphins on the money line and with the points. The Cowboys, which was the most outrageous overcorrection, I think, that we'll see all year. They're a two-and-a-half-point favorite at home with Dak Prescott at, at halftime of the Sunday night football game against the Bengals the next week. And then Dak's will down there seven-and-a-half. Mm-hmm. It's like, hold on, man. We've seen Cooper Rush. And now... Now, if they were to play that game now, it'd probably be what it was. Yeah, I picked Dallas in that game. And in the column, I wrote the same thing. I said, we've seen Cooper Rush. Right. He's capable. What does he have to do? What does he have to do when he goes out here? You know what I mean? Like, does he have to? I mean, he he showed that he was capable of managing the offense. But not only that, the game where we saw him, he put up that game against Minnesota. Yeah. It was like, you know… All-star numbers. I yeah, mean, it was, a, yeah. it was a great game. So I, I was I was big on Dallas covering that game too. I didn't necessarily, I didn't say pick them straight up. Actually, I think I went on another radio show and I did say I would pick them straight up, but I was on them there too. I got off them this past Monday though, so I messed up there. Yeah, but. I mean, I was, you know, I really thought the Giants were going to have a home field advantage. It was going to be the first time that the Giants actually were playing the Cowboys and the Giants were in 2-11 and 11 going into that game. Yeah. So there was some optimism there, but that just, the offensive line is bad and Daniel Jones is just, a nightmare and wide receivers. Enough. I don't want to talk about them. It upsets me. But so I, I like the Jaguars as one of my picks. I like, I like the Packers minus 10. I know it's a big number. Some places here in Vegas is minus nine and a half. Love it there. Minus 10. I think New England was a prime regression candidate. They were my favorite team to miss the playoffs after making it the year before. And playing at Lambeau, with a backup quarterback now, I think what Green Bay does really well is beat up on the crappy teams, especially when they catch them like this. Usually, if it was in division, I wouldn't take it. But the fact that they don't play each other often, yeah, 
it's a, it's a good spot for Green Bay. And then the last one that I have over here is, I, I know you're going to disagree because you said Miami, but I think it's the spot of the year so far, catching Miami when you do if you're Cincinnati. I like that up to four. I took it early at minus three, bet it again at minus three and a half. At four, I still think they cover by a touchdown or more, but it just, when the numbers start moving like that, do get a little hesitant, but those will probably be my three favorite plays. What's the number at right now? Is it at four? It's at I had four. got it at four. Yeah, so it's at four, it at four now. Four. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like four. I'll take I'll take the points with Miami. I mean, what have they, you know, <laughs> what have they done to not, you know, to make us not think that they can win with a four point head start? You know what I'm saying? I, I just I'll take that. No, all that's day. fair. I'll for take sure. that all day. Now, now there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of injury questions <clears> in Tua, you know, we don't know what that's gonna look like. So, you know, there's a lot of, and they're going on the road. Um, But I took that. I like Baltimore. Mm. I like Baltimore. I like Baltimore with the points. I think that Baltimore could lose a close game here. I really do. I think we're going to come down to field goal or or less. So I like Baltimore with the points. I know that's like the ultimate, like, whatever. Like, goony way to give a game to say the team's good. This team's going to lose, but they're going to cover. And then when they lose, you're like, well, I knew they'd lose. So you always yeah, get one thing yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. So I'm not, you know, but whatever. Like, I think that, uh, you know, because then if they win, I still look like a hero because I said, hey, I said bet them, but whatever. I think that uh, Baltimore at home, getting points at home, the way that they're playing, I mean, I just think those two teams are very evenly matched. And yeah. I think that they're the quarterbacks are evenly matched. So it's like in, in a game where two teams are pretty evenly matched, give me the point. Give me the team at home with the points. Yeah. Are you kidding? Uh, you know, you're, you're just giving me too much there. I mean, if it was a more lopsided affair, you know, I'd, I'd feel differently. But this is, you know, we already said it. This is the two best teams in the NFL playing each other, but they're in Baltimore and Baltimore's getting the points. I like it. I like it. That's a, that's a pick that I definitely agree on with you. David, this was fun, man. I appreciate you coming by the studio. Thanks for coming on the anytime, show again. Anytime, anytime. And uh, I know you you come out here often, so we'll definitely do this again. The floor is yours. Plug away. Where can they find you? Tell us about Gamblers one more time, where they could find that. And Yeah. Listen to Gamblers. The um, episode three dropped today. Um, you can catch that anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, I'm, I, you can read my column in the New York Times. That ought to drop tomorrow. It, it runs in the paper every Sunday. Uh, but you probably don't need to read it because you listen to this show. So you're getting much better NFL information <laughs> from Nick you. than you're going to get from me. Uh, but uh, yeah, I read my book. My book is called The Vapors. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got, if you like gambling, you might like it. It's got a lot of gambling history in it. It's a story about uh, the city that was Las Vegas before Las Vegas, Las Vegas. It's, uh, so please buy that book, check it out. And, um, and I'm at DaveHill77 on Twitter, DavidHillOnline.com. Before we wrap up, big shout-outs to the members of the Patreon. We got Nick Chavez, Christopher Velasquez, Derek Platees, Devin Rendon, Jordan Riley, Mike Wozniak, Nick Crumbs, Alex Harden, Thomas Robinson, and last but not least, the newest member, Ben Kotzian. I hope I got that right. Probably didn't, but congrats and thank you for joining. And for September, Thomas Robinson is the winner of the September giveaway. Reach out to us. Message me or find the show at veteransminimum.com and we'll get you your merch. Thank you all, David, once again. Thank thank you for joining the show. Shout out to the guys in the control room and we'll catch you guys next time on Veterans Minimum. 